Hello and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, editor of Every Woman, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions of inspiring women in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today we're taking on technology, specifically the power and politics of big tech and what it means for our future. And we're doing that with Lucy Green, whose new book on the subject, Silicon States, is out in August. As Worldwide Director of Innovation Group J. Walter Thompson's Trend Forecasting Consultancy and Innovation Unit, Lucy is used to looking into the future. So we are excited and and possibly a little scared to have her in the studio today to discuss her new book, Silicon States, which is out in August. Thanks for having me. So I just wanted to read a little bit from the book to set the context before we start to discuss it further. Silicon Valley is imperialising the planet, you say. With nearly bottomless supplies of cash and boundless ambition, a small group of companies have been gradually seizing symbolic and practical live civic leadership in America and around the world, with big plans to fundamentally alter sectors such as healthcare, space exploration and transportation. Everything is broken, in inverted commas, and they must reinvent it, and they are doing so largely unchecked. So... If you're not a libertarian, that's quite sobering stuff. Let's, <laughs> let's start by uh, asking, why did you write the book? What was the biggest question that you wanted to explore? I actually came up with the idea for a book for the book around um, 2014. In, in my job at J. Walter Thompson, a lot of my role is um, looking not only towards the future, but looking at cultural shifts, um, looking at the future of different sectors, but always through the lens of the consumer. And so I'd always looked at this group from the point of view of what new consumer products or consumer platforms that they were introducing. And of course, um, they in recent years have come to sort of pretty much own all consumer behavior. And the thing that struck me, um, it was actually at the Web Summit in um, October 2014, where um, I saw Peter Thiel speaking and he was talking about trying to solve aging. And it was at the same time that we saw um, Elon Musk's brainchild Hyperloop trying to talk about uh, a super train that could bend space and time. So this this notion of bending space and time, cracking humanity, um, investing in schools, right? There was um, Facebook investments, um, Zuckerberg investments in schools. Um, And it seemed to me that their ambition had sprawled way beyond something from a product or service to something much more holistic, almost like the Victorian industrialists. So it kind of set me on with this path to explore based on these early really this early case studies what that future might look like if if it did become a sort of replacement for what we have now i mean are we talking a linear future or is it all to play for what how do you see it unfolding because obviously we're in the middle of massive change um what i mean what is the biggest possible scenario as much as my book sort of ties it all together. I don't think everything is one concentrated, intentional conspiracy for Silicon Valley to take (laughs) over the world. And I actually don't think they necessarily want responsibilities. We've seen with with media, um, you know, it's a lot of it is about um, these companies seeing opportunities that can scale very quickly. And a lot of the promises are about marketing spin. You know, a lot of the altruistic messaging is about trying to inspire people with a change the world message as opposed to actually really taking on something tangible from, from the state. It's um, it's kind of varies by, by case study. So is the idea then that uh, these big tech behemoths, they are stepping into 
sectors and areas and spaces that traditionally government has had a monopoly on and the tension there within. And is the tension because of the disruption or because they are unchecked? There's a couple of things. So uh, the state is, particularly in countries like the US, is shrinking and under pressure. And um, simultaneously, you are having this group seeing not only an opportunity um, financially to disrupt these spaces, a bit like they've disrupted entertainment and all these other um, places, but reinvent the model using things like algorithms and artificial intelligence to reduce costs. And some of that is really um, admirable, but it's it's also um, because they have the majority, they're a huge wealth center now, they have more money to put into invent, um, innovation. They're actually leading all innovation in a way that governments might have done previously. But because of that, they're also defining what innovation looks like, what problems get solved, what space looks like, where NASA might have defined that before, life sciences and exploration of pushing the boundaries of scientific reinvention and, and discovery, which might have been led by something, I guess, a bit more ethical or cerebral, is now being led by quite ego-driven, um, problem-solution-oriented um, big, big feats um, that will have that have a big PR engine and a narrative associated with it. Um, it's quite a sort of um, distorted focus and one that is different to way, the way maybe the state might have approached things before. Also, I mean, we, we at the Every Woman uh, in Tech Forum recently, there was a lot of chat about how AI, for example, is also influenced by this very male-dominated culture, which Silicon Valley is, and how uh, unconscious bias is being encoded into AI because there aren't enough women, um, you know, basically in the industry. Um, right. I mean, that as well, I suppose, can play out... Uh, as quite a negative influence in, in terms of what we're talking about. Right, in, and in very distinct but also subtle ways, as we're seeing even tangential but relevant comparison is in something like Wonder Woman, which was directed by a woman, and like in to all intents and purposes, it's like an amazing superhero movie, but because there's a woman behind the lens, it, it manifests in a very different way that resonated in a much more powerful way with not just women but all audiences and and I think the same thing could be said of when you look at the way that environments are designed the way systems are designed um, I make the comparison in my book with um, between Silicon Valley leaders and their current sort of town building and train building and education educational views uh, with actually Robert Moses the famous um, town planner of the um, post-war era in the US. Um, for those who don't know about Robert Moses, he um, was responsible for really some of the biggest urban renewal projects in the US in the post-war era when there was this huge boom, a huge enthusiasm for um, the future, the automobile. It was a time when the future was closely aligned with private industry. It was Ford. It was the World Fair outside New York. Um, but it was, you know, it really saw big urban centers being completely altered by a small group of suited white men who had this theoretical idea about what the city should look like and what um, what should be done to improve it. And it was it was unproven. And what was shown, and I have a lot of sympathy with um, Jane Jacobs, who was the sort of big anti-Robert Moses figure. She was a journalist. Um, and she talked about how much uh, the degree to which he didn't understand the complexity and the nuances of environments and cities. And I see really a lot of that in Silicon Valley now, the way they're trying to uh, 
very much think about bigger system on a bigger systemic level about what cities and what our lives should look like. But again, it's all from a very, very narrow perspective and point of view, which is typified by actually their very rarefied environment in San Francisco and the Bay Area, which is very white and and uh, male. protected and male, yeah, yeah, yeah. and not diverse. <laughs> I mean, yes, these theoretical ideas. Uh, it leads me on to my question about you know about progress. So, I mean. This is all about the idea of progress, both back in, in you know, in the in the 19th century, but also now. Uh, progress is never a neutral idea, though. And it seems to be very aligned at the moment, especially in Silicon Valley, with the idea of disruption and the idea that all disruption is always progress. So, I mean, how how do they view progress and how do they define what that is? Because a lot of the time, especially, you know, you see that the, 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 the ideas of sort of driverless cars, but there's no thought about the impact beyond that, whereas in a governmental system there might be. Talk me through a little bit about that idea of progress in, the, in Silicon Valley and how they see it. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think from even from Clayton Christensen onwards, there's been this uh, fetishization of destruction and the, the PayPal mafia as well of sort of disrupting yourself um, to reinvent yourself and keep yourself relevant, which I think carries a lot of weight actually within business. So it's this idea that if you don't disrupt yourself with a sort of cheaper, better decentralized or alternative model than someone else will. Like that makes a lot of sense in businesses. Um, although in a lot of the Silicon Valley cases, it's with companies that aren't actually profitable. So it's an Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry, but uh, with a model that is platform-based, right? Um, the thing about that is when it gets applied to something like the state, uh, it's kind of, it becomes a case of, I think Silicon Valley's view is, because you can, you should. Yes, I was going to say. Um, and government is becoming, and they sort of talk about government in a very derogatory way, like it's very slow and it's, um, you know, cumbersome and it's holding back Outdated. this innovation. Right. And Peter mm. Thiel is actually, again, he's he's talked a lot about um, innovating first and then asking forgiveness, forgiveness later. But... And and that increasingly is just becoming the norm, right? So Uber can move into any city, whatever, and it reaches scale because we're all adopting it. And and the state is often powerless or struggles with its resources to monitor or regulate or even much less tax um, all these changes before they have a, a negative impact. But um, I think there's a, a failure of sort of asking about, but, but what if? Um, because a lot of the solutions being devised by this group Although they're offering um, perhaps more alternative or faster options or, or sustainable, as in the case of the connected city, um, a lot of them are geared towards making stuff more affordable to middle classes or the 80%, not the 100%, which is a, a government-based model. You know, government is for everybody. It's for the people that can't afford things. And a lot of Silicon Valley models are based on making things accessible to the, the sort of the middle of that. And... I think a lot of the reason why they're, they're having so much success is because they've managed to really successfully attach a narrative to what they do. Um, so Elon Musk at, at um, South by Southwest, I mean, the deitization of, of Elon Musk is like kind of insane. <laughs> um, and, you know, they've managed to very, very closely associate the future and a passion for the future and positivity and also getting stuff done, right? And financial success in the market like the US, financial success is being is synonymous with being clever 
and being right. Right? You, if you're rich, you must be smart. And so um, it's very easy to sort of just assume, therefore, um, because of this lack of like really meaningful critique, that um, what they are doing is kind of self-determining and, and, and righteous and not really take a step back and go, well, hang on a minute. Is this actually is for this the good of, of, of everybody? Of everyone. Well, I was going to say, you know, are, are a lot of their disruptions really about ego and profit rather than this sense that somehow they're bringing good to the world through technology? And and I was going to ask, you know, do, do you think the tech giants basically need to dress up the idea of this self-interest at all costs as a sort of romantic idea of the libertarian, which is a very, very popular way of, of defining your position in Silicon Valley? What's really interesting with this group, and in my book, I look at mainly post-Apple sort of resurgence. Um, this narrative and the kind of altruism that they've attached to what they do, this sort of sense of wonder that they do, is really closely intertwined with the transition of uh, technology into consumer technology. So when you think about the way technology was in our lives, like even, I guess, like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it was, first of all, it was kind of government like machines or used in engineering. Then it was the desktop computer in the office, but we didn't really have a home computer. Then we had the home PC. And now we have laptops that we uh, are interchangeable between our personal lives and our, our work lives. And and that's because of this explosion of this explosion of consumer technology. Um, but the way that that technology has reached critical mass is that it's 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 been positioned by marketers as something more than technology. So Apple is more than Apple. It defines you as a person. It makes you seem cool. You're a creative person. Um, Google and Facebook they've both attached like massive narratives to what they do. They're not just a search engine. They're not just a social. They're connecting the world, right? And, and that, so as they move into these new spaces, they're having to attach similar narratives to what they do to make it seem like it's more part of this bigger mythology that they've created, but it is ultimately uh, driven yes, by- Ultimately the their companies, not right, philanthropic organizations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say, you know, what's the role of their philanthropic pursuits to legitimize their activities? So I know a lot of them do a lot of that kind of outreach as well as, uh, you know, as part of that brand narrative. Yeah, exactly. It's um, the philanthropy thing is super interesting, especially, I mean, it's slightly different um, philanthropy in the UK to the US. In, in the US, because the welfare state is not nearly so, uh, big and far-reaching as it is in markets like Europe and the UK, philanthropy and big philanthropy has traditionally been the sort of supplementary pillar to the state in offering people um, educational, um, artistic resources and cultural resources. There's the Carnegie um, libraries. Um, so all these, it, there's a big tradition of industrialists making lots of money um, and then donating and then donating that and entering into philanthropy. What's interesting about Silicon Valley um, individuals is, is that they're doing this, but kind of on steroids at a much younger age. So they're doing it they're, and, and as a result of that or intertwined with that, they're doing it. Um, they're approaching philanthropy with the same business principles that they have their own company. So they're kind of, you know, how can we hack philanthropy and make it more... <laughs> how can we disrupt it? And, right, exactly. Yeah. So they're sort of doing the same the same approach, which is to... Um, so there's a lot of venture capitalists, social good organisations sort of making and um, setting up a private company like an LLC, um, which is a social good venture, which means that you can be doing social good or solving a problem, but also be profitable. 
And um, so what, and one thing that really defines actually their approach to philanthropy is this sort of duality between doing good, but also being really effective, solving massive problems and also potentially being profitable as well. Like they see profit potential in solving uh, world problems. But again, it's quite binary and troubling if it becomes a replacement for what exists as traditional philanthropy in the US, because it's very, very much focused on ego, on solving those massive problems on science and technology. Um, it's looking at things that have a huge PR, a PR narrative attached to it, like, can we take us to space? Can we you know, crack the code for aging? Can we solve disease? There's nothing nuanced or subtle, and it all presents them as saviors in our lives. There's a sort of savior mentality. And there's also massive socioeconomic and uh, ethnic bias in, in how they're approaching problems. They're not looking at the homeless issue in San Francisco, famously, um, is the biggest criticism leveled at them. But, you know, the opioid crisis in the U um, US is a, a massive national epidemic. And uh, not looking at that. And, but also, I mean, having spoken to a lot of um, philanthropy experts in, in the US, not looking at even more subtle problems, like there's nothing like, you know, soft benefits or alleviating, like that's just not, it's not dramatic enough. It needs to be sort of self-contained and conclusive and fast. And if it's not that, then they're kind of not interested, which all again, as I said, is fine until it becomes a replacement for what has existed before. Mm, mm. I mean, it's interesting, the word solve, you know, solving disease is right. a very interesting way of putting it. And and as you say, you know, that there is, you know, they're solving the things that they want to or that they deem interesting. So it's not about society, it's about the organisation. I mean, I was going to ask, and perhaps this is a an unfair question, but perhaps it isn't. Um, is this a, more of a male psychology? Is this coming from the very heavy male-dominated Silicon Valley? And, and if so, what, what role does the relative lack of women play in any possible dystopia that's about to play out? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to discredit all the, all the men out there, but I do think it is a, a masculine construct inherently, um, or a certain alpha male uh, construct. Predilection, yeah. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's very achievement-based. It's very visibility-led. It's very ego-led. And like I said, quite... Uh, binary and quite telling. Um, you know, it even, you know, there's a chapter in my book, I look at the experience of women in Silicon Valley and their approach is, is, is different. And it's, but it's, it's not just women in Silicon Valley. It's just in general, major groups of people are underrepresented. So it's what often doesn't get talked about is not only that there's the a lack of women and um, racial diversity, but also socioeconomic diversity. Everyone there is uh, highly educated and usually from quite a privileged background. And that really skews not only the kinds of problems that are tackled or opportunities that are seen, um, but how they're approached and um, the tonality with how they're approached. Um, and you're only beginning to see sort of the fallacy in that. I mean, you know, they were famously late um, Apple being one of the main examples to addressing the idea of women's health, for example. They didn't realize um, in their health suite that they should probably have like a menstrual tracker, for example. But what's really exciting to me now is that for the first time uh, at CES and at a number of the tech shows, you're seeing more and more now uh, female-founded consumer tech products aimed uh, at more female-centric concerns, health concerns, well-being concerns, 
being led and architected by, not to steal a word from uh, Ivanka Trump, but uh, architected by <laughs> women and designed in a much more empathetic way, um, executed with nuance and uh, really unlocking this market that has been kind of ignored. And so, I mean, that's that's the other thing, like, that you know, by ignoring the female voice, um, among others, they're actually missing massive opportunities. Mm, mm. Um, and when you, you see the success of various connected products aimed at women that are doing really well, so LV, which is a connected Kegel exerciser, guys, um, or Life Cycles, which is a um, fertility tracker, or Willow, the connected breast pump that was in Times, uh, I think, top 10 products for 2017. Um they're, they're missing a trick by not investing in, in these types of things. Uh, I mean, how aware are they of this? Or I mean, and how aware how are aware are they generally of their power? Or, you know, I was I've I've sort of written notes here about you know they, they, a lot of times we've seen them playing catch up these sort of people that are you know mega brains and solving the world. You know, for example, Facebook's belated admission that it might have had something to do with the swaying the Donald Trump election. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what, what is the level of awareness amongst the big guys? That's, that's really funny. I mean, you go to Palo Alto and it really is exactly like the show Silicon Valley, Mike Judge's um, show. There is a startling lack of self-awareness or almost like a brazen lack of self-awareness. You know, you have guys walking around like head to toe in Patagonia with like branded merchandise from whatever respective tech company they work for. I mean, I, I don't know how genuine all of that is. It was it was very interesting to be at the another web summit, which was uh, during the um, U.S. election on the day that Donald Trump was announced the new president of the U.S. And there was this sort of unfolding existential crisis on stage among all these VCs and tech founders and um, sort of going, you know, like, oh, wow, maybe we did have something to do with this because they like to think of themselves, especially because they consider themselves to be consumer brands, very millennial and on the whole, if not progressive, then kind of neoliberal, you know, broadly appealing to audiences. And so in this audience, uh, the Web Summit, which is largely millennial and um, Gen X tech, quite affluent cosmopolitan European um, entrepreneurs, um, they were suddenly faced with something that they might have created. Although I, I ran that theory by Nick Denton, the, the Gorka um, uh, founder, and he was he said that he he didn't believe that at all. He's like, you know, they kind of qu probably quite like the idea. Of, oh no, we didn't realise how powerful we were. Like it kind of feeds their <laughs> ego in a way. So he pours scorn of that, but on that, but um, there definitely was a, a startling sense of surprise and unease among this group. They really hadn't thought through the implications of what some of the technologies they're creating from automating everything from kitchen equipment to uh, shipping processes and retail processes, like what really the, the far reaching impact of that will be on a societal level. I mean, they haven't you know, it's taken them a while to even begin to come near admitting accountability for anything, really, hasn't it? Right. I mean, because accountability means being legislated and, and controlled. And there we have it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, yeah. Um, so I think that's a good chance to bring in this last question. I was going to say that your introduction, going to the introduction at the end, ends with the ominous sign-off before it's too late. <laughs> and... Uh, 
what I wanted to ask you is, is it too late already or can we still redress the balance of unchecked tech power? And, and what does that look like? What are the futures? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that's difficult to say with any like concrete certainty, of course. I, I do believe that the big tech brands have reached the peak of their cultural influence and mystique. You know, they can't any longer go into emerging markets with this sort of plinky plonky ukulele music and seem like a plucky bootstrapping <laughs> startup, right? Yeah. And then in markets like the US and the UK, where there was this huge wonder attached to their big temples and what they do, like that's also coming under fire. Although it's not stopping any of us using them. And it's become so difficult for us to not use them that you would have to basically become a sort of societal outcast. I mean, I, I left Facebook, but I'm still on Instagram and WhatsApp. And I wanted to leave Instagram recently. And then I thought, but if I'm on WhatsApp, really, what's the point? I'm still part of the Facebook matrix. Um, and I think it will vary by market. Like, you know, in, in the U uh, UK and Europe, where there's more of a pronounced state uh, or stronger state. You are seeing pushback, particularly European and uh, the European Union are really trying to push back on their um, control. But that isn't stopping them in markets like sub-Saharan Africa, where governments are less able to stop. And actually, a scant on resources are seeing, or you know, having to maybe welcome all the internet infrastructure being built by this group in return for some degree of uh, control and flexibility. Uh, autonomy, I guess, on the on the behalf of those groups. So, what one thing that does really excite me, though, is I think one of the reasons we have the situation we have now is that the people in government have not been that tech savvy or uh, up to date with these technologies and really the implications of them on society, but also what it might have on their institutions. The difference or the change that I see coming ahead, or the reason why I'm quite hopeful, is that you now have older millennials who are tech savvy reaching candidate age. You have Mark Zuckerberg being one, but also people like Scooter Braun. You have new political satirists who are very uh, tech savvy from Jonathan Pye here to Russell Brand. Um, so a new iteration of political candidate that is would say would consider themselves ethical, but also understands what these tech groups are about and what tech transformation is. Um, and then you have this new voter base, this really exciting uh, teenage voter base becoming voter age at a, a rapid rate and actually massive percentages of them, that are a very high percentage of them and um, that are eligible to vote actually going out to vote. And they have uh, typically a very um, ethical and thus far quite um, a liberal sensibility. It's been shown both in the UK and the US. So, um, and again, very, very, the, the, they're hyper digital natives, as we saw with Florida, using social channels to affect change. So, I'm excited about those two groups bringing in a new era where uh, technology and speed, and let's not forget these efficiencies are in a lot of instances really great, um, but does it all need to be led by private corporations? I like the idea of this, this technology being embraced by government institutions, but in a responsible and thoughtful way that benefits everybody. Absolutely. Well, positive thoughts for the future. and uh, But interesting to keep our eyes on what is actually going on. And uh, if you want to get more of an overview, please do uh, make sure you get a copy of Lucy's book, Silicon States, which is out on August the 20th. Lucy, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you here with us. And thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me.
And thank you all for joining us as well on this Every Woman podcast. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time. Don't forget, in the meantime, there's a wealth of information, interest and further talking points on the Every Woman network and app if you want to access on the move. So until we meet again, have a great day and keep on living your best life. <laughs>